Dino Weiss for Hadar and Parashat Matot Masay. Poetic License. So much depends on above. Sometimes the smallest details make the largest impact. In Parashat Pinchas, we lost Miriam and Aharon. In this week's parasha, God tells Moshe that he has a job to do, after which he too will pass away. Nikom nikmat b'nei Yisrael me'et ha'mijanim, achar te'asef elamecha. Avenge the vengeance of b'nei Yisrael from the Midianites. Afterwards, you will be gathered unto your people. Generally, when the word achar, meaning afterwards or consequently, is used, it is preceded by avav, ve'achar, as we see twice in this similar passage in reference to Miriam. Hashem said to Moshe, and her father spat right in her face, Shouldn't she be shamed for seven days? She should be secluded outside of the camp and afterwards be gathered. Miriam was secluded outside of the camp for seven days, and the nation didn't travel until Miriam was gathered. And afterwards, the nation traveled from Chatzerot, and they camped in the wilderness of Paran. However, there are three exceptions to this rule in the Torah, which are all classified together in Masachat Nidarim. Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, Mikrasofrim, Vitorsofrim, Vikaryan Velochativan, Vichtivan Velokaryan, Halacha Lemosha Misinai. Itorsofrim, Achar Ta'avoru, Achar Telech, Achar Teasef. Rabbi Yitzchak said, The pronunciation of the scribes, the adornment of the scribes, what is read in a way which is not written, or written in a way that is not read, are all halacha to Moshe from Sinai. The adornment of the scribes, itur sofrim, is, afterwards you shall pass, afterwards she shall go, afterwards you shall be gathered. In each of these examples, the meaning of the phrase is identical and remains clear regardless of the vav's omission. And afterwards is now just afterwards. The and has been effectively replaced by silence. The reason for this slightly unusual phrasing is merely ornamental or decorative, an itur. As Rashi explains, itur sofrim achar ta'avoru shemeatrin hadibor tahachi mashma yafeh. The adornment of the scribes, afterwards you shall pass, that they adorn the speech because it sounds nice this way. The Gemara makes quite clear that the absence of this vav is an intentional stylistic choice. It is not a mistake that a person who encounters it must or may fix. And it is also not considered to be functionless or pointless, even though it does not have any concrete meaning. The Torah is a poem and may take poetic license, writing in a particular way because of the way it sounds or the way it rolls off the tongue. These small changes are integral to the beauty and integrity of the Torah, and maintaining them reaches the status of alachala Moshe Misinai, something that is not explicitly commanded by the Torah, but is considered to be one of the Torah's fundamental teachings nonetheless. 
There is no verse which says, you may not add this letter, but adding the letter would be a clear violation of the Torah nevertheless. The language of Halakha Moshe Misinai reminds us of another story, where in the non-content components of the Torah, its beautifications are considered to be of paramount significance. At the time that Moshe went up to heaven, he found God sitting and tying crowns to the letters. He said to him, Master of the universe, who is forcing you to do this? He said to him, there is a person who will be in the future, at the end of many generations, and his name is Akiva ben Yosef, who will eventually interpret from each little point piles and piles of laws. He said to him, Master of the universe, show him to me. He said to him, return behind you. Moshe went and he sat at the end of eight rows and did not know what they were saying. He became dispirited. When Rabbi Akiva got to a specific item, his student said to him, Rabbi, how do you know this? He said to them, It's a tradition from Moshe from Sinai. Halacha le Moshe mi Sinai. And Moshe was comforted. In this story, Moshe himself, the first sofer, the first writer and teacher of the Torah, is confused and perhaps a little distressed by why God would be so wasteful in tying crowns to certain letters of the Torah. God reassures Moshe that even though he finds these jots and tittles to be meaningless decoration, they will provide a lot of inspiration to Rabbi Akiva in the future, and that imbues them with value. When Moshe and Rabbi Akiva meet, the difference between their approaches to Torah is highlighted. Moshe himself is in the back of the class. He doesn't understand what Rabbi Akiva is teaching. The resolution of the story, then, is somewhat baffling. How is this teaching halacha Moshe? when Moshe himself does not understand it, and in fact, objected to it. The explanation is that the individual teaching that Rabbi Akiva derives is not from Moshe himself at all. Moshe would never have taught the Torah in that way, and the text never says that he comes to understand or accept it. Rather, the story underscores that this teaching is a product of the same principle which preserves Iturei Sofrim. Halacha Moshe not halacha from Moshe. Just as we don't dismiss a rhetorical flourish, even if we don't see that it is helpful in conveying information, so too we don't spurn a typographical embellishment. It is this faithfulness to the text that is reassuring to Moshe. He can see that all of Rabbi Akiva's extensions and his personal oral Torah are grounded in the expansiveness of the Torah. And he can also see that they won't change or compromise the written Torah. The Torah is not supposed to be restricted to the transmission of received information. It is also supposed to be open to interpretation and new meanings. 
This is only possible if the interpreters of the Torah are not coming to change the Torah. It is the commitment to the stability of the text that makes derivation of new meaning from it possible. Our new Torah merits the status of being part of the Torah if and only if we can call it Halakha le Moshe Misinai with confidence. The story of Moshe Rabbeinu's hurt feelings and the commitment to a beautiful Torah for and by Rabbi Akiva also teaches that so much of what the Torah means inheres in what it means to us in an emotional or aesthetic sense. There is the Torah of grammar and content, but that is not the entirety of what the Torah is and may not even be what draws us to it. We study the Torah because we find it beautiful or interesting or mysterious, not only because we think that obeying it will enable us to fulfill God's will. And sometimes it is the smallest things that attract us, one verse or one phrase, the crown of a Zion or the curve of an Aleph the absence of a vav. If we change the text of the Torah in order to be more comprehensible, we might subtract from the beauty that incomprehensibility brings. The other lesson to be learned from the presence or absence of a vav is about how much the smallest details matter. We might think that if we alter the text slightly, the author of the text won't care. But when someone puts love and attention into something, even the smallest element of punctuation does matter to them. If you change my do not into don't, the meaning doesn't change, but the contraction has a slightly different tone. If you add or subtract an exclamation point from a text message, you can make or break a relationship. Every text has a tone of voice. We ignore the tremendous amount of emotional resonance that can be found in the smallest details at our own peril. This emphasis on being sensitive to small details and the consequences of ignoring them is made frighteningly explicit by the tale of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. Amar Rabbi Yochanan, my dichtiv, ashrei adam mefached tamid, umakshali bo yipol bera'a. Pok. Savora banan le cruve mi shum shalo machut. Amarlu rabizahaya ben of kulos. Yomru bale mumin craven the gave mis bear. 
Savor lemiktale, de lo lezal valema. Amarlohu rabbi Zacharia, yomru metil mum bekachim yeharek. Rabbi Yochanan says, What is the meaning of the verses writing, Praiseworthy is the person who is always afraid, and one who hardens his heart will fall in evil. Jerusalem was destroyed on account of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. As there was a certain man whose friend was named Kamsa, and whose enemy was named Bar Kamsa, he made a banquet and said to his servant, Go bring me Kamsa. The servant went and brought him Bar Kamsa. The host came and he found Bar Kamsa seated. He said to Bar Kamsa, Since this man is the enemy of that man, that is, that you and I are enemies, what is your business here? Get up and leave. Bar Kamsa said to him, As I have already come, leave me, and I will pay the cost of whatever I eat or drink. The host said to him, No. Bar Kamsa said to him, I will pay the cost of half of your banquet. The host said to him, No. Bar Kamsa then said to him, I will pay the cost of the entire banquet. The host said to him, No. The host took Bar Kamsa by his hand, stood him up, and ejected him. Bar Kamsa said to himself, Since the sages were sitting there and did not protest, it seemed that they were pleased. Therefore I will go and inform against them to the king. He went and said to the emperor, The Jews have rebelled against you. The emperor said to him, Who says that this is so? Bar Kamsa said to him, Send them an offering and see whether they will sacrifice it. The emperor went and sent with Bar Kamsa a choice three-year-old calf. On the way, he made a blemish on the calf's upper lip. And some say he made the blemish on its eyelids, a place where, according to us, it is a blemish, but according to the Gentiles, it is not a blemish. The rabbis thought to sacrifice it in order to maintain peace with the government. Rabbi Zechariah ben Avkolos said to them, But if you do so, people will say that blemished animals may be sacrificed on the altar. So the rabbis thought to kill Bar Kamsa so that he would not go and speak against them. Rabbi Zechariah said to them, If you kill him, people will say that one who makes a blemish on animals dedicated to the temple should be killed. The story of Bar Kamsa and his unwilling host is often read as a morality tale about being welcoming to guests or reconciling with one's enemies. Because Bar Kamsa was slighted, he poisoned the authorities against the Jews, leading to a terrible tragedy. However, there is more to the story. The servant of the host of the banquet was given specific instructions to bring Kamsa. The servant did not follow these directions carefully. Maybe he wasn't listening, or maybe he thought that it didn't matter, that he bring the exact correct person. Goldstein, Goldman, who cares? This inability to recognize the importance of being precise with his master's instructions is what brought Bar Kamsa to the door of his enemy. Imagine if you were hosting a wedding or another important event, and you sent an invitation to your best friend from childhood, and someone else, even if she wasn't your enemy, showed up instead. Bar Kamsa could have chosen to leave when he saw that he was not welcome. He could have tried to reconcile with the host, but instead he said, just ignore me. My presence doesn't matter. I'm just one of many guests. And though his presence might not have been noticeable or remarkable to the other guests, it was painful to the host himself and mattered to him. The theme of an attention to detail returns with the conclusion of the story and the way that Bar Kamsa gets his revenge. He makes an almost invisible blemish on an animal, a blemish that a person could easily choose to overlook. 
But the rabbis concluded that ultimately, they were not at liberty to overlook this flaw, could not pretend that this detail was insignificant, and therefore were unable to offer the emperor's calf as a korban. Bar Kamta thought that he was getting revenge on the rabbis, but he also became an object lesson. He almost lost his life because of his narrative that he was the victim and that his enemy should have ignored him. The conclusion of the story is that details do matter, and therefore the slightly imperfect sacrifice was not brought. This is a blind spot that many of us share. We often have a tendency to think that the detail that we notice and our small concerns are of utmost importance. But when others are concerned over details, we think of them as being petty and not willing to see the big picture. The lesson to be learned from Eturi Sofrim is that one person's mere decoration is the source for another's core halakha. The small details may not seem significant. They may not have a clear informational component, but they could have a large emotional component. We need to be sensitive to the small things, to take other people's priorities seriously, even if they are not our own, and even if they seem insignificant. We don't know how much they mean to other people, what a transformation a small vav could bring. Wishing you a Shabbat perfect to the last detail. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to our weekly Debre Torah. To see more from our archive, please visit hadar.org slash Torah.